everyone, welcome to the latest Rosenfeld Review podcast. I'm your friendly host, Lou Rosenfeld, and I'm with a friendly guest, Irene Now, Hi, Irene, how are you? Hi, good to see you. Good to see you, glad to have you on the show. Uh, a lot of you may know Irene already uh, directly because she's really a fixture in the design community in the Bay Area, uh, which is in California, for those of you who don't know that, shouldn't assume too much. Um, even if you don't know her, um, you probably know her work. She's helped build UX organizations at a lot of really interesting and influential places like Netscape. Yeah, remember Netscape, Yahoo, <laughs> and Google, and Udacity. She's now a design partner with uh, Kosla Ventures and uh, has had a really interesting career and, and even managed to sort of have a, a second career. I'm not sure it's really a different career. You, you've merged them, but... Uh, you're uh, very involved in mindfulness to the point that uh, is, aren't you on the on the cover of the recent recent issue of uh, was it Mindfulness Magazine or something? Yeah, Mindful Magazine. I was on the April uh, issue this year and the fifth anniversary issue, so that was pretty fun. So do people stop you in the street? And, uh... <laughs> no, not quite. Although um, it's been really interesting. I've been I've gotten a lot of photos from friends who have seen the magazine in stores like Whole Foods and. Sprouts and Barnes and Noble, and I have yet to see it in the wild. So I'm still waiting for that moment to happen. Well, everyone go out and grab your copy of Mindful <laughs> Magazine, April 2018 edition, because you'll probably run into Irene at some point, and I assume you'll be glad to sign a copy. Um, but um, we could talk about a lot of things. I thought one of the most interesting topics to cover would be the one that I feel um, of the many you do that I'm, I'm the least aware of. And I wonder if uh, some of our listeners are probably a little bit like me. We, we've been all focused on, you know, something that you've done a lot of, which is thinking about the role of design and how it can have an, a big impact in large organizations and enterprises. But you are now on sort of the other end of the spectrum through um, uh, helping uh, startups take advantage of design uh, through your work at uh, the, the venture capital fund, uh, Kosla. Is that like a radically different type of design work than what we might see in, in the enterprise context? I often joke that my role at Coastal Ventures is a lot like all the things I loved about working at Google without many of the things I did not enjoy. <laughs> um, so like at Google, at least during the time when I was there from 2006 to 2012, it was like we had many, many different startups within Google where they were all trying to build something cool and interesting. And then once it got traction, then the challenge was to figure out how to build it at scale. But um, really, we didn't believe that anything was worth building at Google unless it could reach millions and millions of users. Um, and so in that way, it's not that different. Uh, there's still uh, the breadth of projects and then the depth that I personally get involved with, uh, with a few. Um, and it ranges anywhere from, you know, like finding the right talent and building up design capabilities, whatever form that might look like, um, to figuring out product market fit. So a lot of times there's technology looking for a purpose, like some engineer has built something really cool and interesting. And then it's like, okay, how do we direct this towards solving people's needs? Um, and then once there's product market fit, then it's really about growing the company, scaling it. And then as a company moves into series C and beyond, then it's about, um, you know, design consistency and coherency, um, you know, building up a design organization, 
and that sort of thing. So it's really not that different from my experience at Google. Um, and um, that, you know, I mean, to me, that's all the fun stuff. Have you had to build, in effect, a, a design organization at Kosla in order to help you scale up and help uh, to, to help all these uh, uh, partners that you're investing in? Yeah, I've deliberately stayed away from that. Um, and I know that there are some uh, peers of mine at other venture firms that have taken a different approach. But from the beginning, um, the vision that I had and, and what I had agreed with, uh, with Vinod, because he and I shared the same thought, was that we want to contribute at a more strategic level and not actually be doing the work for the companies because in doing that, first of all, it doesn't scale very well and it creates like a disincentive for these companies to build up their own design capabilities. Uh, ultimately, we want them to be self-sufficient and to um, invest um, their own dollars into design. And so um, I stay at a high enough level where I'm not personally moving the pixels. I might actually engage in user research with them. I've run studies with people, done field studies, I've done usability tests, just to give them the confidence that they can do it themselves. Like I think there are a lot of misconceptions around like, oh, we don't have the time or the energy to do it, or we don't have the people, we can't afford to spend the headcount. It's like, you still need to do the research, even if you don't have a dedicated user researcher. But um, in terms of like, you know, wireframes and things like that, it's not so much. So you know, in that sense, it's also not that different from what I was doing at Google because I was working um, with the executives and um, facilitating a lot of conversations and helping figure out, like, how do we get this work done uh, rather than, you know, actually doing the tactical work. So, yeah, you know, design ops is on my mind a lot lately. Mm -hmm. And now research ops, which is a, another neologism that I, I think is real and, and obviously is related. I'm wondering if, yeah, I, I never would imagine that you're necessarily doing the work yourself in your role, but it, it just seems like the more advanced startups, uh, certainly more and more in the future, are going to really start with a pretty solid understanding of the need for scaling up their ability to design research. Mm -hmm. It almost seems like there's, there could be an opportunity to have that hunk of design ops infrastructure already in place at a fund like, like COSLA, where, um, you know, you know that pretty quickly you're, you're, you're going to have to be able to help them scale up um, maybe even faster than in the past, simply because that's going to be the competitive differentiator in their, in their individual markets. So I'm just wondering if there's an, if you can envision you know, almost having a consulting organization that helps your partners quickly scale up in terms of design ops. I, don't know, I might need to, to rephrase that question. <laughs> well, you know, there's also the question of like, what does design ops mean? Because I'm discovering that it's starting to mean different things for different companies too. So um, that's, you know, I mean, I think, um, design ops, I mean, the fact that it's just become a function that is residing inside companies that are more established now kind of, I think, reflects, um, you know, that for, from a startup's perspective, like they need to get engineers first, they need product people, they might need salespeople, they need design. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's like, a, like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs before you have a company. And that's not to say that design ops is not important or critical, but like if you're a startup and you have enough funds to hire five people, 
you know, are design ops going to be like the first ones to go in? Not necessarily. And then in terms of, um, you know, could, like what if I came in with a design ops team? Well, actually, if I were to build a team, um, you know, I would probably hire user research first mm-hmm. uh, because that's where I feel the startups are the most underinvested. And where if they actually did it, if they did more user research, they could get the biggest bang for their buck, more so than like a, an ops team. And, you know, for me, like I think of design ops as like, you know, design producers where they're kind of helping to keep the trains moving. Um, and maybe that means different things to different people. But this is my, my understanding of design ops. Um, well, uh, yeah. So, I mean, like, I guess I'm almost seeing it as if you let's say you're, you were at Google and, you know, there were, I'm not sure if you were in this role, but, you know, there were people who were in effect the COO of the design organization who had to think about things like, you know, maintaining pools of, uh, of subjects for, for doing user testing or uh, building out pattern libraries and design systems. Lou, you have obviously never worked in a startup before. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is, so I know that that's not what happens in startups. However, if you then took that model and said, rather than being Google with a million different products that could benefit from reusable components and, and not having to reinvent the wheel and not having to reacquire a bunch of test subjects and so forth every time you want to do something, could you then take that same approach at a venture fund and sort of see like instead of divisions of Google, we have startups that are in our portfolio who could all benefit from sharing some of these same operational or uh, uh, operations and systems. Yeah. Well, so there's a lot of stuff out there on the open, in open source already. Um, so, mm-hmm. um, you know, bootstrap, um, like if you use bootstrap, like for free, you pretty much get a decent looking UI without a lot of design investment. So I've even seen startups where they've had no designer, but because they had some really good front end engineers, they had a delicious looking user interface. Um, the thing is the portfolio is so broad that design really means different things to different companies. We have one company momentum machines where they're building a robot that can sear a burger to perfection, toast the brioche bun, assemble the whole hamburger with no human intervention. Um, (laughs) I have another company that analyzes your poop and can profile your entire gut microbiome. Um, So, you know, I mean, you can imagine like the whole... (laughs) The interfaces (laughs) will be the same, but they should probably be in some sequence, I would imagine. Right, right. (laughs) So... um, Yes, I mean, there, de- there's definitely a lot of benefit to having um, things off the shelf that uh, companies, startups can get up and running, you know, very quickly. I think material has helped a lot, um, iOS standards, things like that. And so, I mean, everybody's sensibilities around what is good design is elevated. And then you have these different tools like Figma and Bootstrap and things like that that can get people 80% of the way there mm-hmm. without a lot of high-touch involvement. And so I don't think that that's necessarily something that, Coastal Ventures needs to develop because there's a lot of stuff already out there. Um, but I have been cultivating community amongst the um, designers in our portfolio. So for example, when I surveyed our portfolio companies recently, I found that um, designing and implementing design systems is like the number one issue these startups are grappling with. They're all thinking about it. And there's so many questions around it, ranging from how do you get it done and how do you even carve out the time to get it done? to um, once you actually have it, what's the best way to roll it out? Like, do you rip the Band-Aid and just put it out all at once? Or do you trickle it out slowly? What does that look like? And, you know, 
I don't know if there's any necessarily one right answer, um, but I think it helps these companies to be able to hear stories from other companies that have done this and have gone through that journey just to evaluate like, okay, well, these are different options. This is what these people learned um, and so forth. There's no cookie cutter one size fits all. And where there is an opportunity for things to be templatized, I think there's so much stuff out there now that um, companies can use. There's some great toolkits out there. So that's not really where I would, I, I don't necessarily think that's the biggest bang for the buck in terms of spending KV's money, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so, but things like, you know, we ran a workshop with um, Adaptive Path, you know, even though they're bought by Capital One, um, Steph Hay did a workshop for us on content strategy. And that was all about how to choose the right words to speak to your audience. And that was just transformative. I mean, like real tactical, practical advice around choosing the right words, evaluating, like testing it out, and then, you know, coming back and evaluating, like, does this work or not? And then, you know, uh, adjusting as needed. Um, we did another one with Indy Young on um, practical empathy. So teaching people how to do user research in the most formative, generative way. And, um, you know, this is something where I think a lot of people feel like, oh, yeah, if we had time, that's such a luxury. But, you know, we're just trying to, you know, make it to our next funding milestone. Um, but, uh, you know, the more people embrace the idea of reaching out to users first. And I think for people who are listening to this podcast, working at larger companies who um, have user research and maybe an abundance of it, it's kind of like, what? You know, <laughs> like, this is even a problem. But like I've talked to CEOs who have said, you know, we feel uncomfortable talking to our customers because like they're expecting us to have all the answers and we don't want to make ourselves vulnerable by telling them that we don't know and that we're reaching out to them. And so there's this, this mindset uh, that needs to shift um, so that CEOs feel comfortable with that vulnerability um, and um, can, can get into this habit of like understanding people using that to ideate, um, you know, using the inspiration from that to ideate a lot of um, ideas and then, and then prototype them and then figure out like what's the best path forward in a way that's really, really quick. Um, then there's the other side, which is like just changing existing cultures. So, you know, we, you've been asking about, um, you know, comparing against the enterprise. Um, like we have quite a few enterprise companies in our portfolio and um, a lot of the design leaders ask about um, how do we cultivate a culture of design within the company? Um, so that's a very interesting um, challenge, you know, and a lot of different tactics that they can employ to do that. Um, but ultimately it comes down to how do they collaborate with their cross-functional stakeholders, like in product management and in engineering. There's one company, for example, that I worked with where it was a completely waterfall process. Um, the designers were not allowed to speak to any of the customers um, because like they didn't want to overload customers like sales is reaching out product marketing's reaching out you know we don't want design to also reach out and we had like a product manager who was um, very old school kind of like okay here's the product requirements document here are target users these are their needs um, and then like expecting the designers to come up with the wireframes and the design for this feature and then the engineers would implement that uh, whatever designs the designers came up with. And once we got them all in a room and got them collaborating in a different way, um, where we really helped them empathize with like, okay, for these three different target user profiles, ultimately, what's going to make them feel awesome? What are their motivations? What are they trying to do at the end of the day? Like, you know, and asking why, 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 like five times. Then the engineers came back and said, you know what? 
we don't even need to build this feature <laughs> because we could just automate the whole thing <laughs> and do it behind the scenes with no human intervention. And, you know, if we need to have some sort of human approval, we can send a report back and, you know, have the person say yes or no before it gets executed. But it takes away a lot of the manual, you know, labor and, and elevates it to more strategic thinking for the human operator. And even though this was a lot more engineering work um, for them, they were really excited about building this. It was a much more elegant solution. The designers had much less work to do because they didn't have to do all these wireframes. Suddenly all of this was like, there's no interface. <laughs> but they were excited because it ultimately solved people's fundamental needs. And um, the product manager was maybe a little bit less happy because <laughs> like this whole process kind of usurped his typical way of doing things. But that was kind of the beginning of shifting the way these different functions collaborated inside this enterprise company um, that was trying to be more design focused. And yes, for them, whatever is produced as design, like in terms of look and feel, it is beautiful, um, but they really understand at uh, the highest levels of the company that design is about understanding people and what they need and thinking about the why before the how and the what. Well, that makes me think uh, back to a point you made earlier about helping startups with product market fit and how you're often in a position where you already have some piece of technology. And now it's like, well, let's do some research. How might people actually benefit from this technology? Do you ever envision or maybe you can get to uh, work with partners before they invented technology? Like, is there ever a situation where, I mean, I know like the model is typically, you know, there's the technology first and then, you know, there's the technical proof of concept in a sense. Uh, and then they come to you and hope for you to help with product market fit. And if it's promising, you'll, you'll support them. But do you have situations where they haven't created the technology, but they have done a pretty good job of, of um, conceiving and explaining the idea and you get to do research without the technology? You're still, you're just, you have a completely clean slate. Um, I mean, I think for entrepreneurs to get funding, there needs to be a proof of concept that, the, that they can actually make the technology work. You know what I mean? Because ideas are a dime a dozen. Like a, prototypes are not enough. Um, well, I mean, prototypes can be good enough, but there, there needs to be, you know, uh, a robustness that, um, you know, like what's the size of the opportunity or can this... Uh, prototype actually be built at scale? How defensible is it? I mean, there's so many questions um, that need to be addressed um, before one secures funding. Um, the other thing too is that for Coastal Ventures in particular, we tend to invest in really hard tech. Uh, so we're less apt to invest in like a social media company, for example. Um, we are looking really for areas where hard tech can help transform the world in a positive way. And so most of the investments that we're making really are starting with technology. Um, but increasingly, you know, because I'm there, we're getting them to think about technology and design first. <laughs> um, but, you know, at the end of the day, if the technology doesn't work, doesn't matter how great the design is, like Absolutely. tech needs to work. Um, but yeah, I mean, also you can have great tech, but if it doesn't really solve a person's problem, then that, that's not going to work either. I mean, you, you, you really had a, a fantastic uh, a track record of, of really getting organizations to change, especially in terms of how they relate to and, and use design. It's really exciting to see. Before we wrap up, is there any other point you want to make or thing you want to leave us with? 
Um, well, I want to give a shout out to Koi Vin, who um, recently posted a nice post on his blog, subtraction.com, uh, called In Defense of Design Thinking, which is terrible. And he was, um, he wrote this in response to wait, 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 wait. The, the which is terrible is that's part of the title, title. <laughs> not his blog post, not the blog post. Okay. <laughs> in defense of design thinking, which is terrible. Um, that was in response to a talk at 99U that Natasha Jen gave. Um, and actually she gave that right after I gave my talk, it sort of eclipsed my talk because <laughs> it was so provocative. She, her, her talk was called design thinking is bullshit. This was at 99U last year. And, um, you know, I saw the response on Twitter where people were like, yeah, finally, you know, because she, she's basically saying like design thinking is not enough and design thinking is not design. But Koi wrote a really nice essay um, a few days ago that um, kind of provokes everybody to embrace the idea that everyone is a designer and that the more we can educate the broader public around design thinking, the more successful designers can be. And that completely resonates with me. I mean, that has absolutely been my experience in working inside rapidly growing companies as well as um, inside startups from the very beginning is that first of all, the CEO needs to embrace design and understand what that means. And, and then only then can designers be empowered uh, to do you know, what they think is the right thing in order to create a good outcome. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out to to Koi for that. And just run us uh, by the title one more time. so we can... <laughs> It's called In Defense of Design Thinking, which is terrible. <laughs> That's and, great. you know, it came at a nice time because um, my older daughter, in, who's a sophomore this year in high school, uh, just did this community action project where they went out to nonprofits and tried to understand, like, you know, what are the issues that these nonprofits are dealing with? And then their task was to come up with um, possible ideas for what they could do or build to help these nonprofits. And so the school has been pushing design thinking. In fact, they're flashing up the chart, you know, with all the different stages of design thinking and stuff. And so as these uh, kids were giving presentations around their work, um, they actually said, oh, yeah, and we're doing design thinking, and we went and visited IDO as part of Career Day, and we saw that they were doing the same thing, too. They had post-it notes up there, which is exactly what we're doing, and I was just cringing because, <laughs> I was like, okay, now we have a whole generation of kids who think that design thinking is just brainstorming with post-it notes. <laughs> and then they were talking about coding, and they were talking about how they couldn't get their link in HTML to work, and I was like, oh, gosh, and this is the same group of kids who thinks that coding is basically HTML. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just going to pick on you because I was going to say, well, you know, of course you live in Silicon Valley, so that's what your kids are thinking about and taking field trips along uh, for and so on. And then <laughs> I will leave you with this. Uh, I was, um, we, we had my, my friend Andrea Gallagher who works at Google uh, over for dinner last night. She was here in town in Brooklyn and my nine-year-old son, Nate, is a fourth grader. She and Nate were talking and he starts asking her about the differences between design and coding. I don't talk with him about this, <laughs> but it's just happening. It's out of control. And, and uh, if you're a parent um, or, or thinking about it, just be prepared to uh, find shop talk around the table. Uh, yeah. But I, I think even if it's a naive and limited view of uh, what coding is or what design is, I'm, I'm glad that it's percolating up to people's awareness, you know, that there's interest, there's acceptance that this is like, you know, like when we get to the point where design thinking is regular thinking, then, 
designers can just go back to creating great design. They don't have to do all this evangelizing and just around the corner, (laughs) which corner, but hopefully it's a nearby one. Irene, thanks so much for joining us today. Irene Al, design partner at Coastal Ventures. Uh, Great to talk with you and uh, I hope to have you back on the show again sometime soon. Thanks for having me.